0: Listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the Blue Ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening radius on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cornell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles. The ocean makes up about 70% of the planet's surface, with about 30% of the planet as land and continental masses and islands. The water around these land masses have what's called an exclusive economic zone, which gives exclusive extractive and conservation rights to its governing country. This zone extends 200 miles out. Beyond that 200-mile mark is the high seas, waters under international jurisdiction, which make up about two-thirds of the entire global ocean, which is about 45% of the Earth's surface. And what a hard place to govern. We're going to be discussing this today. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. David Freestone. He is an expert in international maritime law He's the executive secretary of the Sargasso Sea Commission, which we'll talk a bit about in the second half. He's a visiting scholar at George Washington University Law School, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Marine and Coastal Law. He has many other appointments and positions and publications, grounding him as an expert in international governance of the ocean. And I'm, I'm so honored to welcome David. David, you're live on the air
1: Oh, good afternoon, Jennifer.
0: Thanks for calling in today. So we have about 15 minutes to kind of dive into this topic that's so massive, covering almost half of our Earth. And I know you have so much to share about it. And I wanted to just start with, um, in 1982, the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea occurred and laid a basic framework for the law of the sea. I wanted to, this is kind of the big backbone picture of it all, but can you talk a little bit about how this convention came together and what were some of its outcomes?
1: Yeah, surely. Great, great place to start. Yeah. So the 82 Convention, the World Sea Convention, is, is really what uh, was called by the chair, the Constitution for the Oceans, because it's a, an enormous document, over 350 uh, articles, five annexes, and it's a huge document which took nine years to negotiate. They started talking about this in 1973. That's a long time ago. And issues were rather our, our views of the ocean and our knowledge of the ocean is very different in the 70s uh, than, than than it is today. I think we have a much, much closer view of sort of the impacts that we're having on, on the ocean today. And we also know a lot more about deep sea ocean resources uh, than we did in in, uh, in the 70s. So it, it covers... Basically, it sets out the regime for uh, maritime zones, so it's the, uh, the territorial seas that states are entitled to, the exclusive economic zones, which you, uh, which you talked about earlier, which are really the creation of the 82 Convention. And it also recognizes the continental shelf. Um, which extends out to the 200 mile limit, but also in many cases beyond as well. So we're now at the stage where we can actually explore beyond 200 miles and states are allowed to make claims under the convention Uh, in excess of 200 miles. We've sort of seen some of these claims uh, in the Arctic, for example, but also large extents of other areas as well, where there are resources which belong to the continental shelf of the coastal states, which are still under the high seas. So it's quite a complex regime. And the main point, I think, the takeaway from it is that, because we knew so little about the importance of the high seas and of the deep sea bed in the in the seventies, that this is a little bit of what we've called the uh, uh, the the uh, unfinished agenda of the convention. It's not. It was never really uh, thought through what regime should cover their, uh, the uh, the areas beyond national jurisdiction, as the UN calls it. So it's like a, it's a, it's a rather an unfinished issue, which the uh, U.N. has been talking about and is actually just about to do something, um, begin a negotiation just in the next month or so.
0: Wow. So this has been going on a long time, just discovering and t- discussing how we all need to, gather, need to work together as a global com- um, community. When I was thinking about this topic, I was thinking a lot about all the conversations about climate and regulation of carbon and energy And this is so much along the same lines in terms of uh, international agreements to help to conserve the commons that benefit us all around the planet. And we're not making the the strongest and fastest progress in that area either. I mean, do you see these almost as parallel efforts in terms of...
1: The Very much so yeah, I mean, one of the as a, uh, an ocean specialist, one of the things that I and I also I actually teach international climate change law at uh, George Washington University as well. We were one of the first to introduce a course on this. Um, but one of the big disappointments is that the Framework Convention on Climate Change doesn't. M- m- Mention the oceans at all. I mean, there's one reference to it in relation to sequestration, but it's not. There's very little kind of oceans agenda within the North, within the uh, Framework Convention of Climate Change. The Paris Agreement makes reference. You know, the, that was the one that was decided in in December of uh, of last year. The Paris Agreement does talk a little bit about the importance of the oceans, but it's not central to. Uh, to its agenda, which is about really reducing the emissions of greenhouse gases from from the member states and it 's not just the developed countries now but the developing countries that are taking on unilateral commitments to do that but so they are two very parallel agendas we didn 't know as I was mentioning we knew so little about the sea, uh, the sea floor we knew very little about the ocean ecosystems, but in the 19, again in the 1970s we didn 't even really know about climate change in the way that we do. There's no mention of sea level rise, for example, in the convention that was discussed, negotiated over, uh, over nearly 10 years in the, in the late 70s. It was really only in the 80s that we began to be concerned about sea level rise. Uh, so there's no provi- some of the provisions actually need to be looked at again in the light of, uh, in the light of what we now know about sea level rise.
0: Most of the the activities that we have along the coastlines are fairly coastal, within about 200 miles, and it's expensive and extremely difficult engineering to go out beyond. Can you talk a little bit about some of the activities that are in these international waters that are of the highest concern?
1: Right, sure. I mean, I think that, again, I was brought up to think that the seabed was a sort of arid space, that there was nothing there. It was like a desert. I mean, we now know that there are cold water corals, we know that there are seeps, that there are uh, blue, uh, black smokers, that there are uh, systems in, on the seabed which contain life forms which aren't based on on oxygen in the way that we're in, sunshine that we, we're used to they are based on sulfur and other so these other uh, creatures that are called extremophiles which have a lot to offer us in terms of scientific research etc. So there's all, all that aspect of the of the exploration of the sea, which we, we didn't know in the 70s. I think in terms of the, of the current uses of areas beyond national jurisdiction, since 1990, and this is quite an interesting uh, coincidence, uh, a scientist was doing research on, on, uh, uh, on icebergs, and he was doing it using satellite data. By accident, he discovered that he could actually pick up um, the tracks of vessels, and he discovered that it from 1990 to 2010, when he was doing his work, that there actually, there was a threefold increase in the number of vessels, of, of uh, cargo ships traveling across the ocean. So there's a huge amount of international traffic, a lot of it, you know, obviously containing trade, etc. There's been a big increase, of course, in in uh, submarine cables, uh, submarine where previously about. I've mean uh, I mentioned orange ruffy. Orange ruffy was discovered by, really by, or commercially discovered by the New Zealanders about 20 years ago. It was used to be called the slime head, and they changed it for marketing reasons to the orange ruffies. They're a pretty little fish about uh, about foot 18, 18 inches long. These live to 150 years old, and so they're kind of unique species which... Um, which we know very, very little about. They don't reach sexual maturity till they're about 18. They, they spawn in, in, in year classes, which can be taken up by some of these big nets which are being used on some of the seamounts where they spawn. So all, all these sorts of activities were not envisaged when they were negotiating the Law of the Sea Convention. We have a, we have a, a system of regional... Uh, fisheries management bodies some which come most of the most of the oceans covered by it by the tuna bodies but there are regional agreements covering most of the areas of the, of the high seas but not all of them and we have no certainly don't have any uh, regional environmental treaties that deal with the areas uh, which are beyond the 200 mile zone so this is all a new agenda really and uh, i think for the last uh, if I can carry on, for the last 10 years, the General Assembly has been, the UN General Assembly has been talking about this, and has a working group that's been looking at this, whether we do actually need something to supplement the existing, the famous 82 convention to deal with areas beyond national jurisdiction, particularly the conservation uh, and sustainable use of the biodiversity in those areas where there isn't really regulatory framework.
0: If I may interject right there when you 're talking about a working group to address that, do you think they would look at it as a, a somewhat of a issue based working group, so one on the biodiversity that you just mentioned, including fishing, but maybe another on minerals and the seabed, or is it all kind of lumped together because in my mind it 's just like seems like the big wild west there 's no regulation <laughs> there 's no enforcement it 's just everybody out for their own, which yeah. is terrifying thinking about. Um, a changing ocean and and things changing all the time and and the biodiversity as you mentioned
1: right well, I think that 's right i mean it, 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 I like the wild west analogy, but it 's not quite as bad as that but the the basic principle is what 's called flag state jurisdiction, so it 's the the flag the the, uh, and the country's uh, which own the flags, which the ships fly, that are responsible for policing them. And some of them are much more rigorous in doing that than others. We know about, you know, US, the United States, and you can gather from my accent, I come like from Europe, well, the U.K. and the E.U. particularly are, are fairly good at enforcing the make sure their vessels um, comply with uh, international uh, requirements. But there are a lot of so-called uh, flags of convenience, uh, which offer much cheaper registration, uh, systems and they're much less rigorous in their enforcement, so that that's a big hole in it. But otherwise, we've got what I call would call sectoral uh, regulation. So we have the International Maritime Organization that regulates vessels. We have the fishing fishing organisations that regulate fishing. We have actually we have a, quite a developed system for seabed mining, or let's say seabed exploration. Uh, minerals which is governed by the seabed authority which is set up by the 82 convention. So that's actually one of the the areas where there really is a good international regulatory system that's just for the exploitation of minerals on the the seabed. They're just beginning to look at the possibilities of mining in these areas. Um, But there isn't anything that ties it all together. There isn't a holistic, there isn't a sort of overarching framework that deals, that gets the marine, the maritime organization to talk to, the fishing organization to talk to, the cable layers, uh, etc. So all these activities are taking place in an area which we regard as kind of limitless. It's, as you say, it's half the planet is high areas beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, and so we, uh, you know, we've tended to think, well, you know, nobody's going to be treading on anybody else's toes we're used to regulation closer to home in the 10 12 miles outside or off our coast but you know we've tended to see the the the, uh, the high seas as being limitless and it isn't increasingly we realize that you know our own reach is extending and we our own activities are having huge impacts plastics for example you know like land the pollution that comes from our uh, from from land The discharge of plastics, for example, is all accumulating in the gyres uh, around the earth, around in the oceans around the world. So that's something that we didn't even think of.
0: Right. Well, land-based plastics certainly an issue that we'll have to be working on. But I do know. I mean, one positive with the MARPOL Act, uh, the International Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships, banned any release of plastics. But I've always wondered how do they how do they enforce
1: that. Yeah, that's, well, this is the flag state jurisdiction, so the vessels that are actually, I I think you're right, let's just uh, address that first part of it. I I mean, we're talking about land-based sources, we're talking about people throwing away plastic bags, the plastic bags washing out to the ocean, and then breaking down into small pieces We're, you know. Uh, I was listening to a radio program the other day when somebody says well what, what does this plastic look like it 's not as if you can walk across it on large pieces of plastic it 's all broken down into fairly small pieces yes I think that from a from a scientific point of view, all the plastic that 's ever been created except that which has been burned is actually still there. It just gets smaller and smaller it degrades it doesn't it doesn 't uh, uh, destroy itself so it's, uh, so it 's all there it 's in small and has an impact on the kind of way the system works. So we're not really talking about discharges from plastic discharges from vessels. You're right, MARPOL is a very effective Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes, and actually, yeah. we need to take a, a break right now. Actually, on the second part of the show, we're going to dive into this wonderful case study that is a positive and showing how this these international efforts to potentially work together are are bringing together a commission to make some positive change to the Sargasso Sea commissions. We'll be back in a minute. Stay tuned. part of a really exciting collaboration that is actually taking all these ideas and conventions to another level of actually doing something. And going over to the Atlantic Ocean, there is a special place called the Sargasso Sea. Can you just give us a little background of what the Sargasso Sea is?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, um, I think most people have heard of it, but not many people actually know where it is. They find it difficult to put the finger on the map. So it's basically the North Atlantic gyre. It's a subtropical gyre around Bermuda. Bermuda's about 1,000 miles off the coast of of, um, uh, South Carolina. So it's right in the middle of the uh, the, the, the North Atlantic. Um, And it's formed the sargassum. Sargassum is a a form of uh, seaweed, which floats as a result of little... little, uh, like great bubbles, bubbles of air, which keep it uh, buoyant, uh, and it's what's called holopelagic, and that means that it, it spends its whole life at sea. It doesn't, most well, seaweed is broken off from the from the shore, etc. But holopelagic uh, seaweeds are completely oceanic, so they they reproduce by breaking in half. Bits break off them, and they can be very old. Some of the seed stock of these uh, of the of the, uh, of the algae it's formed in the um, Gulf of Mexico, uh, so it finds its way through the Miami Straits up into the Gulf Stream, and then it's washed into the gyre, and there it accumulates into mats. And those mats, if you float anything in the ocean, fish sit underneath it, and uh, they act like fish aggregation devices, fishermen are aware of the importance of this. So this is like an oceanic mat, like a, a coastal environment, which is two, 300 miles from, from the shore. Uh, and it has its own species that live on it. It's over the over the years. It's actually developed endemic species that live in only in the Sargassum. Special fish and crabs and, uh, and and shrimp and other and other creatures. Um, and it also has a, acts as a sort of habitat for a large number of other species, like um, small baby turtles once they get off the beaches of uh, on the in the Atlantic. Uh, there are a lot of predators. They head out to sea away from the coastal predators, where they find this fairly Nurturing environment because the temperature is slightly higher amongst the weed than it is elsewhere. They can eat it, and it also provides them with protection. Uh, so it, it's endemic species, and it's only and it's also got these. It provides a kind of nursery, and then the most amazing story really is the European and American eels, the anguilla eels, which um, live in their, their what's called catadromous. So we're used to uh, knowing about. Uh, about salmon, which are anadromous, they, they spend all their life at sea, and then they return to the place where they were spawned up rivers, and spawn again, and then another generation is born. The, the eels do exactly the opposite; they spend their life their lives in brackish water and in fresh water. When they're about ten, twenty years old, mature, can be much older than that, but about after about twenty years, they head out to, to the ocean about 3,000 miles to this area in the Sargasso Sea, just south of, of Bermuda, where they spawn and die. And then the little guys, the leptocephali, they call, find their way back on the ocean currents, back to the European ones, find their way back to Europe, and the American ones find their way back to the Americas. We don't think the same rivers, because we just have no way of verifying that, but it's, it's, uh, it's only recently that we fully understood this, never been witnessed. So the Sargasso Sea is this huge mass of of weeds, which was discovered actually by Columbus on his first voyage. His his, his, his seamen, when they got into the weed, thought they were near coasts. Um, little did they realize they were 400 miles from, from the nearest land. And then they were worried that they'd just get caught up actually in the weed because it was so thick. Mm. We don't see mats like that anymore. But it's, it's, an, so it's a, a very iconic ecosystem which is very important for biodiversity. And of course, the... You, know, you were mentioning climate change. It's also a carbon sink because uh, the, the algae grows and then it dies and pops to the bottom and it sequesters carbon as well.
0: Amazing! That is a really wonderful description of that environment. And the eel story is absolutely amazing. Thinking about freshwater and saltwater and saltwater to freshwater. I love that. There's so many mysteries out there that we're still learning about. Yeah. So with that wonderful ecosystem that obviously has so much benefit to so much marine life out there, how did the premise of the Sargasso Sea Commission come to be?
1: Well, we, uh, I, I and a number of others have been working with the International Union for the Conservation of Nature on this AB&J issue, there beyond national jurisdiction, and, you know, it's been talked about in the UN, as I said, for nearly a decade, and there will, I think, be a treaty negotiated, but it's likely to take at least four or five years more. So about in about 2010, a number of, uh, of philanthropists uh, got together with uh, very famous uh, uh, American scientists uh, who uh, who uh, has been, been leading this, and they said, well, shall we try and do something in advance of the UN? Let's see what you can do within the Within the exist- using the existing organizations, the existing institutions, to actually put protections in place for the abn in areas beyond national jurisdiction. We won't wait for, the, for, the, for the, a new convention. And so what we decided to do was to try to use the existing what I call sectoral organization. So let's go to the International Maritime Organization to see if they can put protections in place for the, uh, for, uh, against the uh, risks from shipping. From discharges from shipping say let's look at fishing organisations of which there are two there's the North Atlantic Fisheries Organisation and there's the International Convention for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuners, ICAT so we've been talking to them and we've actually got made progress with them as well we've talked to the to the to the cable laying organisation the international um, committee it is actually it's not a uh, actually a regulatory also talked to some of the agreements second is one of the great advocates of ocean conservation, so Monaco signed as well. And since then, we've actually got the British Virgin Islands signed, and we have sort of collaboration from a number of other governments, including the Bahamas and uh, Trinidad and uh, South Africa and a number of others. So we've attracted a lot of attention at the international level, and we appointed uh, a commission. These are volunteers whose job is to exercise stewardship over the Sea. We don't have legal powers. Um, but we want to flag the fact that this, isn't, this is an area where uh, uh, bad things are happening, let's say, as a result of human activities. We're finding increased plastics. We're finding increased evidence of pollution from vessels. You know, the fishing uh, generally in the area has been, has been highly depleted. So we're looking at air, ways in which we can uh, take, me- take measures to, to protect it.
0: That's wonderful. And so with the support of each of those sectors that you mentioned, um, what are some of the goals that you hope to see, say, 15, 20, 50 years from now in the Sargasso Sea with this commission working together in terms of the stewardship?
1: Wow, fantastic! To give me a nice long time horizon. <laughs> yeah, I mean we've been we've actually achieved an enormous amount in the last uh, in the last four or five years. We actually got the UN to recognise it. We've been mentioned in the UN every year. They have a UN composite resolution on ocean issues, and they we've been mentioned the last four years as being an important uh, initiative. Uh, we uh, the um, United Nations has just produced a, a world ocean assessment, the first one ever. Uh, And we have a whole chapter on the Sargasso Sea, Chapter 50, which is the only named ecosystem. The others are more generic. So we've got a lot of recognition from from the UN. So we hope that will continue. It may be that we'd actually move towards having a Sargasso Sea treaty in time, which would actually be all the countries around it, but other treaties, other countries could join also to indicate their support, because we've got... Um, support from governments which aren't in the region, like South Africa, for example, and, uh, and, and some of the other uh, government, the government of Netherlands, for example, is interested in Sweden and others. So that would be one one goal. The other would be to put, you know, to put more serious protection measures in place. Um, we have this area, iconic area, which. Um, is 2 million square miles. We're not going to make it a no-go area, 2 million square miles in the North Atlantic, but we would like to see some form of restriction of vessel traffic through it. As the vessels go through the Sargasso Sea, they kind of break up the mats, so that's something we would want to see. We'd also like to see recognition by uh, states of the importance of it, as, as a particularly as a breeding area, for example, for, for eels, but also for other species which are endangered like marlin for example we, we know definitely that marlin actually spawn in the sargasso sea we have some evidence that uh, the famous bluefin tuna which are you know from both the pacific and the atlantic but the atlantic bluefins are actually found in the sargasso sea when they're known to be spawning in other parts of the world in the gulf and in the, in the mediterranean so you know there's evidence there's sort of prima facie evidence that this is probably a spawning area for, for for tunas as well. So that's really what we've been looking at. I'm not people. There is it's not so much making it a complete no-go area or a complete no-fish area, but to actually some form of regulated arrangement using all these little uh, all those little sectoral arrangements that we can, uh, that we already have. And ultimately, if the if the UN does actually produce the draft convention that we've been talking about. It's just starting on this process now. It's actually starts at the end of this month. The first meeting is actually the last week of March. If they actually produce a convention, then we would want to be the poster child to actually get in there and, uh, and have the seed recognized as one of the, the areas which they will be seeking to protect.
0: That's fantastic. It's really a really historic event and a wonderful case study to show that... Um goodwill of collaboration and stewardship as a theme amongst all those countries and sectors as well so that's a fantastic story of how it can go another level and while you're talking about the atlantic and listening those listening those countries i was thinking about the pacific and it's just so big and do you know of any other uh, areas of different ocean bodies that have similar interests of doing what the sargasso sea commission has done
1: well, we've been you know, certainly been held out as being a model for this. And certainly there are some in the Pacific. I mean, we're, we're I'm part of, a, of a, an organization which you probably know of called Big Ocean, where we're looking at big areas which would need protecting. But in the Pacific, of this, there's a, a great project run out of Costa Rica called the Costa Rica Dome, which is an area where, uh, because of the currents, that there's very high productivity in the area off Costa Rica, off the, we- off the west of the Uh, Central America where a lot of species collect uh, cetaceans, but also tunas and the sorts of creatures that we've been talking about in the scientific sea, so very similar and we're in very close contact with them where We're we're in uh, good colleagues with that. I was just hearing about a place called the the White Shark Cafe a thousand miles off the coast of California where white sharks gather and they just discovered this by tagging. No idea yeah. what they think. So they call it the cafe, which is quite a great name, I think. But basically, because there are lots of white sharks there, they presumably they might be, they might be breeding, they might be pupping, they might just be hanging out. That's, so it's quite an interesting that we know. So we're only beginning to discover, you know, why the areas are in, in particular areas are important.
0: Well, I want to actually t- chime in here. We're almost at the end here of our segment here, but you brought up a good point about the White Shark Cafe. We know about that because of technology and tagging and satellite technology, which has certainly illustrated much more of the ocean that we have never seen before, and I'm sure activities as well. And I'm curious from your standpoint, working towards these global agreements, do you feel technology and satellite, um, te- the satellite technology and, and technology like Google Ocean is an aid or a hindrance when it comes to potentially adding in components for stewardship of these high sea areas?
1: Oh, absolutely. Fantastic aid. We we're actually having a, a workshop uh, courtesy of NASA, who's actually been working with us. Uh, we're having a workshop later this month to look at all their, the, the data that they've collected, all their satellite data, and then we're trying to overlay it with information about Tracking of animals about fish about ship movements, about fishing activities, so we can actually get some picture because it's otherwise it 's a kind of a, a blank area in the ocean, so we want to make sure the, the satellites and the other data that we have are a way of of actually filling in what so we learn so much we learn much more about it, about the ocean dynamics, so we can make much more informed decisions about uh, about the activities which uh, which we Permit and which we allow, you know, that, that we don't just regard it as being an empty space, which which we can do whatever we like, the Wild West you talked about. So I think that this it brings it home. You, we can pick up vessels which are not doing what they're supposed to do, and that's one of the things that Google uh, has been been looking at, I know, uh, and others. Uh, so that it's, uh, I think, the new technology is definitely the way to go. We haven't got enough vessels to be to be policing these areas, so. Satellite observation is, is a tremendous way of doing that.
0: Well, that's fantastic. We're just about at the end here, and I wanted to add if, or ask you if there are any way that people can follow along and hear what's happening with this next rendition of the UN Convention and certainly with the Sargasso Sea. Are any specific websites that you yeah. would recommend?
1: Absolutely. Well, um, we, we, have a, we have our own site, which we've just re- revamped, called www.sargassoccommission.org because we're, we're a not-for-profit uh, international organization. So uh, happy to look at that. And we do actually post uh, developments in, from the UN as well. The, also, the UN website, the Division for Ocean Affairs and Law of the Sea, it is UNDOLOS, that has a great website, which has the Law of the Sea Convention and the records of all those meetings uh, as well. Uh, so it's uh, going be a great site.
0: Wonderful. Well, David, thank you so much. I know that you are an extremely busy and important person with all the work you're doing on an international scale. And I really thank you for coming on Ocean Currents today to share a little bit about what's happening out there.
1: Well, it's a great pleasure and I'm very impressed with the program. Congratulations. I look forward to it. And I hope your uh, uh, listeners have enjoyed it. Tremendous
0: Here to Ocean Currents, we've just been talking with David Freestone about the high seas and specifically focusing in an area called the Sargasso Sea, which is an area in the Atlantic that's extremely productive and a bunch of countries are coming together to work together to conserve it. And I just want to let folks know, I'd love to hear from listeners. If you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, please email me, jennifer.stock, S-T-O-C-K, at N-O-A-A dot Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. It's part of the West Marin Matter series, where every Monday at 1, you can tune into KWMR and learn about a topic of environmental focus, either locally or globally. And Ocean Currents has a podcast. If you haven't checked it out yet, you can go to iTunes and search for Ocean Currents. Or you can come to cordellbank.noaa.gov to get past episodes. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the ocean, bay, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin KWMR. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.